Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. I'm not sure I'm the best person to talk to because uh, I should state from the outset, I've never, ever done proper training. I'm not completely sure what a watt is. I do have a rough idea. I've never worn a heart rate monitor. I've never done an FTP test or anything like that. I've never had a coach or followed a training plan. Hello and welcome to Faster, the Dr. Hutch podcast supported by Cycling Weekly. I'm Michael Hutchinson, often known as Dr. Hutch, and I'm a former pro cyclist and national time trial champion. This time, we're talking about ultra-endurance, races that last for weeks, not for minutes, which traverse mountain ranges, cross entire continents, and sometimes involve truly epic shopping. I'd come out of Lidl with a carrier bag half the size of my bike and sit and eat until I'd reduced it to the quantity that I could carry on the bike and then kind of groan off with a full stomach. But within an hour or so, I'd have sped up again. This is the most extreme end of bike racing. Riding for days on end brings unique challenges and demands a whole different set of coping strategies. Afternoons are terrible for me. I feel like it's the end of the world and I am slow and pathetic and I hate everything and my bike and myself and I don't know why I'm there. Mornings, like from the moment I get up at like 3am to the time I have something, whatever passes for lunch, I am flying. So that's when I cover the miles. Afternoons, I would then say, okay, ride really slowly and weakly, hope that nobody sees you, go down into your small ring and just hobble onwards. And then as, uh, as night fell, I would get some sort of second wind, I don't know why, and as soon as it got dark, I'd be moderately flying again. The transcontinental race is a two-week-long, 4,000-kilometre race across Europe. It's part bike race, part adventure, and in 2016 it was won by Emily Chapel. Emily is a former bike courier, long-distance tourist, and a writer who wrote the hugely engaging book Where There's a Will about her 2016 race. And the book made clear to me, as if I didn't already know, that Emily's world of cycling is a very different one from mine. Well, Emily, welcome to the show. Um, I'm very pleased you're here. I know next to nothing about long-distance bike riding. Um, the longest race and longest ride I've ever done was 12 hours, which felt quite long to me at the time, but in the context of long distance bike riding, that's not very much. Um, the one thing I do know a little bit about from your very excellent book, where there's a will, which obviously I recommend, um, is the transcontinental race. Um, so just, just to sort of 
give me an idea of what we're talking about here. Tell, tell me about the transcontinental race, just, you know, length, distances, how you do it. Um, so this, yeah, it's sort of the other end of the scale from what you do in oh so many ways. So there's a lot of races like this, but to take the transcontinental as an example, um, it's a race that is usually around, I think, just under 4,000 kilometres. It's different route every year. Uh, so it's across Europe from one arbitrary point in the north to one arbitrary point in the south, or, you know, they reverse the order some years. Um, it's self-routed, so they just give you four checkpoints that you have to hit, but in between that, it's up to you. The checkpoints are normally up mountains and things, so you don't get to take the easy route. It's self-supported, so you don't have a team car, you don't have any sort of infrastructure laid on, you've got to do it all yourself, you're not allowed to have any sort of backup except your own wits and credit card. Um, and it's non-stop, there are no stages or anything, you just start and about 8 to 14 days later, if you're lucky, you finish. Um, and in within that, you've got to be responsible for, you know, obviously, you can't ride nonstop for that time. So you've got to think, okay, well, you know, I'm going to sleep, but obviously, my rivals will also be making this decision. So there's, there's quite a lot of uh, sort of management and tactics in there. Um, like any race, you're trying to maintain your top speed but you're trying to maintain your top speed over days and weeks rather than just minutes and hours. So the, there's quite a few different factors in it. It's, as you say, it, it's dramatically different from the kind of thing. Because I used to do, the shortest races I did were for the four minutes on the track. Um, and I, I mean, I know what it takes to win the sort of races I used, yeah, I used to do. Um, they were all about from a physiological point of view at least they were all about high vo2 max the abilities to sustain a high proportion of that vo2 max and looking at riding at you know four or five hundred watts for maybe an hour 500 watts for the four minutes of a pursuit those kind of numbers that is so far from from the kind of thing you know the kind of races we're talking about with you uh, physiologically what does it take to, I mean, you very modestly, when you told, told us about the transcontinental, you left out the bit where you won the transcontinental race in 2016. What physiologically does it take to do that? What are the components? Um, well, I don't actually know. And I don't know if anyone really knows. This is one of the things I find quite interesting. It's a really new and kind of out there discipline, and it hasn't been extensively kind of monitored and studied and itemized the way that, for example, you know, a track sprint has. So there's a lot that we just don't know. And one of, I've got a lot of theories. One of the things I've really think I figured out is um, at the start line of a race like this, you'll have a lot of people who are very, very fit and strong and well prepared, but you probably can't choose between them. If you look to all that, you know, their VO2 max and everything else, I don't think you could pick the winner. I think what um, enables somebody to continue and to thrive and to win in a race like that is after they get to about day three, um, there is, it's well known in a race like this that everybody has a crisis on day three and feels like they can't go on. And quite a few people drop out at that point. And I, I have come across a scientific paper that says on um, long-term expeditions, day four is when everybody has their crisis. And I kind of lined this up and figured out the transcontinental would usually start at night, which means you've already lost a night's sleep. So actually day three is day four. So that, that does 
um, that does figure. And then my theory is after day three or day four, everybody is in a state of absolute exhaustion, sleep deprivation and near injury. And then the race doesn't, it's not so much about strength and speed. It's about how well you sustain yourself and nurse yourself through that in order to keep yourself going for another week. Um, but is but is there still, even we kind of within that, as the because the psychology of it is is a whole different and terrifying mountain we'll come to, I hope, in a minute or two. I still am curious to know if you know when you when you when you say that, do you think actually physiology is al- almost irrelevant in the, in a you know the scientific sense of your actual how your energy systems are are working? Uh I don't know, actually. And there's so much I don't know. I would say less relevant um, in the the way we traditionally think of it. But there might be aspects of physiology that we haven't quite figured out what role they play here. For example, it is known and documented and witnessed that women do better in the ultra, ultra distance events like the transcontinental and various running events. You know, for example, Fiona Colbinger won the transcontinental outright a couple of years ago. I just won a women's race. and there are various theories and reasons why that might be happening, um, some of which could be physiological. Women are better suited to endurance. You know, they, uh, they have more fat to burn. Um, they are better at sustaining themselves over a long effort. Um, but uh, again, there's so many unknowns. We're not really sure how much yeah. it is psychological. Yeah, I found myself wondering if it's the kind of the top end is not so important, which again fits perhaps with the idea that women are better at it. And it's got a lot more to do with efficiency because that was one of the things when I, the longest, say the longest race I've ever done is only 12 hours, which felt like plenty to me, but each to their own. Um, Because I basically have a 10 mile mile time trial. I actually went and did a a, a 12 hour time trial because uh, I was paid to do it. Um, But one of the things there is just the idea of efficiency it's just you know, what you can get in terms of watts. And I don't imagine transcontinental racers spend a lot of their lives thinking in terms of watts, but nonetheless, it's it's power, it's relevant. It's how many watts you can get for each gram of carbohydrate and the requisite amount of oxygen is kind of a level of efficiency. And it seems to me that's that's got to be part of the that's got to be part of the picture. Um, but then it starts to intersect with nutrition. Yeah, and this is where I, I'm not sure I'm the best person to talk to because uh, I should state from the outset, I've never, ever done proper training. I'm not completely sure what a watt is. I do have a rough idea. I've never worn a heart rate monitor. I've never done an FTP test or anything like that. I've never had a coach or followed a training plan. And there are people who do these races who who do embrace all of that stuff. And it might be interesting to, to talk to some of them. Um, I do think... So some of them have come from a more traditional racing background and the training they're doing for the ultra distance races is more speculative, but it still comes from that background. My preparation has just been to ride a hell of a lot um, and to think in a slightly more hippy dippy way about, oh, you know, I've just got to keep myself on the level and eat lots, which has worked for me. Um, Jury's out on how efficient a process it is. Emily suggested that if I wanted to hear from someone with a slightly different approach to training for ultra-endurance events, I should talk to pro rider and two-times transcontinental winner James Hayden, someone who came to the ultra events from a racing background that involved riding some rather more conventional time trials. I asked him how he did it. There probably isn't a perfect way to train because obviously 
you know, if anyone's probably read the book, they'd understand that you don't train for it by doing it. You know, it's far too hard on the body. It, it would just be a negative. So really, the, the the only way to train, well, the way the way that I train now, I have like as much time in the world as I want. Is I ride my bike a lot, and, and we're talking like 25, 30 hours a week. You know, and, and obviously that's not a, 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 a an, an unusual amount for me. I've built up to that point where that's kind of now normal. But it is just like more or less entirely volume based of, of low, you know, uh, like long, steady distance riding um, and lots of it and occasional uh, efforts to, to build the top end. And I think that also comes down to that's what works for me. And I've learned that over the last years. And so there's no point doing anything else, really. And I enjoy riding that way. It's simple, it's straightforward and I can handle a lot of it. So it makes it makes sense for me to do that. But there are other things to training as well, because you need to be able to like fix your own bike. You need to be able to ride through the night. You need to be able to ride through the cold, the rain, the wet. You need to be able to, you know, do it day after day as well. So it's not just about the raw physical athletic side of getting as fast as you can. There are other components of training and, and mental training as well that you need to be doing because no matter how fast you get, if you don't do those other things, they'll just steal time off you in a race like you wouldn't believe so are they okay eating then because obviously and it's with the 12 the 12 hour that i did and i'm going to end up coming back to that despite the fact that that is a sprint as far as you're concerned um i came to the conclusion that a 12 hour was a compromise between how much you could eat and digest and aerodynamics and actually your aerobic system almost didn't enter into it, which in a way fits a little bit with 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 what you've said about um, ultra distance racing. Um, so the game there was to say, well, I reckoned I could eat 70 grams of carbohydrate an hour and I can translate that into a speed of X, which will burn 75 gra- 70, 70 grams of carbohydrate an hour. And you, uh, what essentially I did with all that was I got to a speed that I reckoned I could sustain all day and I just rode at that speed. You're in a way doing something not completely different but with some some compromises yeah well some different compromises and that is effectively what i have always done just in a much more woolly way so i think one of the advantages i have physiologically in these races is that i have quite a good digestive system a lot of people have gastric problems in races like this and have to drop out because they just can't keep anything down or they can't digest anything or they're bloating or every single way that your you know your digestive tract can malfunction you hear about it and Mm. my my (laughs) appetite comes and goes but i'm i'm more or less okay and i can tell you happy stories about all the little banquets that i've eaten across europe um and it's for me that's that's a fun part of the race and it's kind of just like you know a holiday but sped up a bit but i think it's actually quite an advantage because i can just keep banging in the calories and banging out the miles where some people can't i think i think that's a huge i mean it seems to me like that's a huge advantage because if i actually look at the the sort of the physiology of how you would set about doing something like the transcontinental what's absolutely key is you've got to keep energy coming in the instant you can't refuel the writing's on the wall because you can't keep going unless you've got uh, unless you do it unbelievably slowly you're not going to be able to keep going unless you can keep um do, do you then i mean i my kind of lot my, my sort of long distance time trialing record got better as time went on because i tried to eat less 
and not go as fast. Um, but you're still dealing with, do you eat, you know, do you eat gels? Do you eat drinks? Do you eat, what do you eat? I'm guessing you probably mainly eat normal food. Am I over the course of four to, of, of, of a week? It seems you can't live on gels for a week, basically, can you? Oh God, no, no, I, mm. I, I do eat just loads and loads of normal food. So, um, I would have a lot of carrying capacity on the front of my bike. So I could just eat as I went along for quite a long time. Cause when you stop is when you lose time. So I yeah. kind of built my race strategy around riding as much as possible, even if I was riding quite slowly and weakly, as long as you're riding at five miles an hour, you're still doing better than if you'd stopped. Um, so I'd have as much food as possible up front. And we're talking, you know, a couple of days, times a day, or in fact, maybe four or five times a day, I'd stop at Lidl and I'd buy some bread rolls, some cheese, some salami or chorizo or something, um, cherry tomatoes, a bottle of orange juice, um, and something like, you know, a bag of Kinder Bueno or something like that. But most of the food groups were, you know, I'd have some nuts. It was all real food and it was reasonably balanced. I used to really, really crave fruit and veg because I think over that sort of distance, you have to eat fruit and veg otherwise things yes. go quite badly and my body seems to be quite good at sort of prompting. so it's it's a gigantic transcontinental picnic yeah absolutely um you know i come out of little with a carrier bag half the size of my bike and sit and eat until i'd reduced it to the quantity that i could carry on the bike and then kind of grown off with a full stomach but within an hour or so i'd have sped up again nutrition is clearly key to ultra endurance one of the problems is that nutrition to ride for days on end is a different bunch of bananas entirely from nutrition to ride for a few hours a day or even for a few hours a day for several days running. It's also, like all these things, very individual and finding out what works for you can be a perilous business. I spoke to Shu Pillinger, who among other things was the first British woman to finish the near 5,000 kilometre race across America in 2015. When you're trying to prepare for it, um, you know, I took what I'd normally do for my nutrition and my hydration on the 12 hour time trial to a 24. That kind of worked. Okay. Similar scale up. You then take it onto a multi-day race. So I did race around um, Ireland, trying to apply the same kind of things that I liked eating, the amount I ate, um, what worked well for me. And it completely went wrong. My, my stomach couldn't deal with that food for that amount of time. For me, I, I I like carbs and I like a lot of sugar. So I was going quite sweet. I was going um, carb heavy. When you sort of scale it up, actually everything just became revolting after the amount of time. Um, and I actually, um, I don't know whether you know on Race Across America, but I attempted it in 2014 and um, I didn't complete it because I fell asleep um, uh, and fell off my bike whilst trying to cycle asleep and break a collarbone. But when I... Um, that was such a big learning exercise, that first attempt at RAM for nutrition, because it was the longest I'd trialed my nutrition. And we discovered a lot over nine days of what worked and what didn't work. And actually really sweet stuff. Just um, I had real gut fatigue. Um, I felt sick. I could really feel all the sweetness. And then the second time I did RAM, everything went savory. Um, you know, I had shakes with cucumber in, you know, everything to just tone everything down. So you're eating really kind of calming food. So everything that I had practiced with and I was convinced worked and the calorie levels, it it just changes over that time. And you can't predict that until you've exposed yourself to it. 
The biggest difference between the transcontinental and the race across America is that the transcontinental is unsupported. You have to ride alone, there are no team cars, no helpers. The race across America is a supported race. You've got following cars and round-the-clock help. Now that doesn't mean that the race across America is easier. As we'll hear in a bit, supported races have some special challenges all of their own. But for the point of view of nutrition, there are some advantages. Shoe Pillinger again. So I actually had a nutritionist in my in my team behind me, um, and she was making up the most amazing things. So I'd have like uh, each time I had a crew swap, they'd put food in the bento boxes I had on my handlebars. Um, and over the radio, they tell me what my my meals were for the next six hours. And they go and in, in the left hand side, you're going to find some some wraps with avocado in. And then on the right hand side, we've got lots of crackers and biscuits and peanuts. And and they and they've they've worked all out the numbers of is she getting the right kind of stuff? But they would tell me this is what we're expecting you to eat now. Um, and in terms of hydration, we were actually every time I stopped, I had to pee in a little bottle and they were measuring me all the way across um, and we had the hydration spot on. Um, I was I was not dehydrated. Um, uh, it was once I think my numbers dipped a little bit low and they said, right, you're not getting back on the bike until you've drunk that bottle of drink. So we are, we're, we're monitoring it. The uh, for the, for shorter events, and again, I keep coming back to that. You know, equipment is key to shorter events, but the equipment choices for shorter events revolve around weight, aerodynamics, stiffness. I'm guessing the equipment choices for a week long race are a different bundle of compromises. Uh, well, again, there are a lot of different approaches to this. And one of the things about an event this big and sprawling is that there are quite a few routes in. You can be a lot more Michael Hutchinson about it. I am not. Like there are people who do it in um, in skin suits. Um, and I don't because I want more pockets. Um, so for me, rather than thinking about weight and aerodynamics, it's more about comfort and convenience. So for example, I would see some people at the start of the race and they'd have like one tiny little bag under their saddle where everything was folded incredibly neatly into the size of matchboxes. And they'd be very proud of this. And I'd think, yeah, but on day eight, I'm just going to want to shove my waterproof in there. I'm not going to have to try and remember about how I folded it or what about if I want an extra like you know bit of food capacity that I can just chuck something in so I compromise very slightly on things like weight and aerodynamics just so I had a bit more capacity to work with so that I didn't have to spend as much time faffing because with with bike packing when you've got all these bags strapped to your bike there's quite a high level of faff just things like every single bloody buckle has to be done up and every single drawstring has to be tightened and you spend quite a lot of time doing that so i found it was easier if i could just like you know shove things in and not worry too much and then um i used uh i think the year i won i didn't but most most races i did i used um error bars but not so much for the aerodynamic advantage as just for the comfort because taking the weight off your hands is really good having a different position you can ride in and it's it's quite relaxing it's just like you know having a bit of a lie down on the error bars so um that was yeah, that was much more about comfort and effectively keeping my body going. Because one of the one of the things you're fighting in a race like this is you are just 
battering yourself and you don't really have any time for recovery. So your body is more and more and more sort of exhausted and injured and you're having to work around that and also try and minimize it by, you know, I would do lots of stretching on the bike. I'd change position. I'd use the aero bars. I'd use the drops. I'd use the hoods and just trying to sort of keep yourself going and keep yourself as healthy as you can. I mean, in a way, do you, is that something that you can do on a, almost on a, a pattern or a program? And it's the same with eating because clearly some people doing this would say, well, every two hours I'm going to eat X number of calories and X amount of liquid. And I get the feeling from you that with that, you follow instinct much more than mathematics. And the same with things like stretching on a bike is that kind of just say, well, once an hour, I'll do this. Every two hours, I'll do that. Or is it you just follow what, what feels right at any given at any given point? Very much the latter. Um, and I, I wish I were more mathematical about it because I love hearing about people who do this and, you know, they, they have all these alarms set and they have a method, um, but I'm just not like that. And if I tried to set up a system like that, I'd just be constantly like forgetting to do it and getting it wrong and beating myself up. So I think for me, possibly because I have a bit, maybe a bit more experience of like long distance multi-day riding because, I you know, I used to be a courier. I've done big, long like 18 month bike tours and things like that. So I've got a bit more experience of just how I feel, what my body's like on the bike, what my sort of normal range is and when things are starting to get uncomfortable. Um, so yeah, I, I just go by instinct most of the time. You, you, you mentioned having been a courier and I'm sure this is one of these kind of routes that a depressing number of interviews you've done have taken. Is that really, you're a bike courier who, there was a guy called Ray Eden in the 1990s, your race time trials in the UK who won, he won the National 100 one year. He was kind of, he was a big star just at the point where I was starting out and he'd been a bike courier and he got fed up to the back teeth of people who wanted to talk about having gone from being a bike courier to winning national time trial championships. However, I am going to go down this road. Is having been a courier, which I've never done, but that looked to me long days on the bike, different changes of pace, eating normal food, getting food where you can get it, going to some extent on instinct. Is that actually quite a good background to come into ultra distance racing from? I think it might be. And I'm, I'm really happy to have this conversation because I, I don't think I've completely got to the bottom of this yet. Um, while, while I was a courier, um, it felt like a very self-contained kind of dead end thing because you get very, very good at it because you, you're doing this thing all day. I, I got extremely skilled at, at riding through traffic. I got extremely skilled at locking my bike up very fast. But all of these skills felt really useless except in the job in which I was doing them. Um, and I think it's part of the reason that couriers have these alley cat races, which I never really did, um, because it's nice to have something where you use these skills that you've gained. Otherwise, you know, no one ever sees them. Um, but in the years since I stopped careering and have got into other things, I have started to think, well, may maybe there are a few, you know, things. Um, like one one thing, this is sort of a tangent, but one thing you do a lot as a courier is you sprint around town and you stop and start a lot. And then every five, 10 minutes, you get off, you lock the bike up and you sprint up some stairs on your feet. And I have thought I might be better at cyclocross than I suspect because <laughs> this seems like the sort of thing, you know, the skill that might transfer, but I've never tried cyclocross and that's irrelevant what, here. What you need is a really, really long cyclocross, like a 4,000 yeah. kilometer cyclocross. 
that might be just your perfect event because i mean the transcontinental it doesn't it doesn't do gravel and things like that really does it because you oh, rooted no, it yourself oh it does, does it okay yeah well there's sometimes there's been compulsory gravel sections and in my oh, case because okay. i'm 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 also i'm really crap at rooting so i i always end up on uh, surprise gravel so i have done quite a lot and yeah i have there was one i think the year after i won uh, there was a sort of a mountain pass in um Austria, where I got to the top and there was a section that was closed to bikes, a tunnel or something. So I had to kind of get off and put my bike on my shoulder and hike around. So yeah, yeah, maybe that, that did all come in useful. But I think the real things with, with couriering are, what, one of the main things is you get used to getting up and riding every single day, no matter what sort of state you're in, because it's your job and you have to, and there's a limit to how often you can call in sick. So, you know, when you've got a headache and period pain and a hangover and it's Thursday and your knee is sore, you still have to go and do it. So it kind of stops being a decision. You just, you know, you get up and you do it. And that's a useful thing to have in something like the transcontinental. And then I think also it just built up a heck of a lot of uh, muscle. Um, and this is something, um, so a few years ago, I was riding with Mike Hall, who is who was the founder of the Transcontinental, and he's passed away, sadly. Otherwise, he would be a great person for you to interview because he has a lot of very interesting theories on this stuff. And that winter, um, he was preparing for a race and I was kind of thinking, oh, I will, I will copy whatever you do. And he was riding around mid Wales on um, a fixed gear bike, um, basically doing hill reps on fixed. And his theory was, let's just build up an extra layer of muscle to sort of counter the wasting effect of racing thousands of kilometers. You know, you'll just have a little bit of muscle left that you wouldn't otherwise have if you had more of it. And um, I, we never got to find out how that, uh, how he felt that worked. But I was really happy with this because it kind of just fitted in with how I already like to ride. Um, I don't really have much patience for the whole, you know, do a bit of gentle spinning, go into the small ring for a while, have a recovery ride. I'd rather just smash it. And I thought, well, if I if I carry on just smashing it and, you know, going up hills. Um, well, like I, so I, I've just spent a week riding around Devon and Cornwall and for reasons of not being a very good mechanic and not cleaning my bike very often, my bike is currently stuck in the big ring. So I decided, uh, well, I'm not going to miss my holiday. I'll just go and do Devon and Cornwall in the big ring. With the result that I'm currently completely knackered, but I will in a few days be extremely strong. And I think this is something that I got from couriering and all the other riding I've done. Um, there's a lot of advantages I don't have, but I think I've just got quite a, a big reservoir of of muscle fiber that yeah because couriering is how, how many hours a day on the bike was couriering eight nine ten something like that um well it would be a, an eight hour shift and then a commute at each end so nine or ten and yeah a, a lot of stopping and starting like distance not as much as you would cover in that on a in a yeah. straight line but you're constantly sprinting stopping at the lights sprinting stopping at the lights sitting on a park bench for 15 minutes getting up sprinting so and actually it, it actually kind of sounds ideal when you put it like that because it's just that amount of time on the bike on and off the bike different levels of effort sprint stops i was just made and presumably on a fixed gear bike because i imagine you were fashionable Oh, yeah, extremely fashionable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you've got you've got kind of the variations of the cadence and the. No, actually, it's it's interesting. Just, 
I'm really surprised there are more racers from a courier ring background. They're probably it's not one of those worlds that intersects very much with the racing world. They probably exist. And there aren't as many bike couriers as there used to be now anyway. There actually are quite a few. There was um, Edie Harrison won the Transcontinental in 2018, and she was a working courier at the time. I mean, she was back back couriering within about two weeks, which amazed me. Uh And there's quite a few people I've met during the race who've done it to a greater and lesser extent. But... um, there are there are quite a few around, and a lot of a lot of people you meet because it's also it's a very transient job. You know, people do it when they're young; they do it for two weeks, six months, a year, two years, and then they go on and do something else. So they pop up all over the place. As I've heard, there are an awful lot of cycle couriers in journalism. Um, as Peter Walker at the Guardian, Ian Cleverly at Rolura, he's Ian Cleverly has my favourite couriering story, which has nothing to do with performance issues at all. But he, I can't remember where he made a delivery. There was somewhere he regularly made a delivery, and he always tucked his bike in behind the gate and didn't lock it because it was quite well hidden. And he came back one day, I made a delivery and discovered the bike had gone. And he was so upset that he walked across the road to the Lurka Cafe and bought himself coffee and a big cake and was halfway through the cake when he realized that he had now spent all the money he had on the cake and was now going to have to walk home um, <laughs> because he didn't have a bus fare because he'd just eaten it. <laughs> that is what I would do, though, I think. I can see why you would do it. Tell me, that's it, something I know nothing about at all is routing because any race i ever did there was a route transcontinental has as you say a starting point a finishing point and is it four controls in between yeah um, i think it, it's varied but it's usually about okay four. so you've maybe got a thousand kilometers between controls and how you amuse yourself between them is entirely up to you so when i look at the compromises involved in this kind of in this kind of racing the compromises of aerodynamics the compromises of nutrition a whole other compromise is is routing because how do you do you find a fast road that takes longer or a more direct route that goes over a mountain? How do you figure that out? Oh well, this is the the big question, and this is one of the reasons it's so interesting to watch a race like this. And one thing I didn't mention uh, when I was sort of giving the the format of the race is that each racer has a tracker on them, and you can go on the internet and find a map with all of the dots that represent the racers in real time. And people lose days of their life following the race because you get to see, you know, what order they're all in. But then there are often points where the dots will either spread out or go in two distinct directions, and you see where people have made different routes decisions um again i am not the person to talk about this because i'm terrible <laughs> at routing the um the probably the most famous example of this is in in the transcontinental when i when i still somehow managed to win um i got through checkpoint four first woman in the lead very comfortable a thousand kilometers to go to the end and then that evening was in a, a hotel um just on the border with albania and happened to look at Twitter and some some chap had said, oh, I hope Emily Chappell knows what she's doing. And there was a screenshot of the tracker and you could see all the other dots moving in a pretty regular line straight across. And mine had gone south. And I mean, I was just completely off route. There was no route, but any obvious route, I was nowhere near it. And I felt like an absolute idiot. Um, but I, you know, I still made it. I then, I was riding to salvage my pride. So I, I went pretty well for the next few days. Um, I had a lovely time in Albania and still still got in, um, I think, two days ahead of the, the second place woman. They're going to say, do people go on recce routes or do they not announce? When, when do they announce the route for a race that, that's done on that basis? 
several months in advance. I think with the Transcontinental, okay. they when I was doing it, they'd announced the checkpoints in maybe October. And it would be quite a big event because for me, it always felt like um, opening my Christmas stocking. Like, here are the toys you get to play with next summer. Um, and you're, then not people, like, you're not like other people. You do realise that. Oh, I think quite a few of us who do these races. Are, you people you, are not like other people. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, this is why it's such a wonderful race, because it's a race, but it's also this just wonderful guided tour of European mountains and obscure gravel roads and places I hadn't heard of. So when this is announced, do people go and recce the road? Did anyone take it that seriously or how much planning goes into it? I think some people do or recce bits of it or, you know, if they live nearby or if they happen to be going there, they might go and sample a bit of the route. Most people, I think, just spend an awful lot of time on street view, on um, heat maps and just, you know, obsessing over the quickest or most picturesque route through this mountain range. Um, I was not always a particularly competitive racer because it seemed a real shame to take the flat road along the valley when there was some sort of zigzaggy thing that went up a bit higher. So I wouldn't, I would make compromises there. There were some places where I would take the flatter route. Yeah. So that's kind of an aesthetic, that's an aesthetic compromise. Yeah. See, that, that's, the, that's the transcontinental version of somebody wearing less aerodynamic socks because they look better in my world, you see. That's, <laughs> well, that's, that's an aesthetic compromise is what that is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it probably was. If you talk to a few transcontinental riders, you quickly realise that routing is a whole extra dimension that goes on top of all the things you normally have to worry about in bike racing. Routing is how you keep yourself safe, keep yourself happy, it's how you find food and water, find the right places to stop, it's how you minimise the distance you have to ride in the first place, and above all, it's how you keep yourself moving fast. I asked James Hayden about it. If you spent all your time training and you didn't plan a route, you're never going to get to the finish, even if you're the fittest person in the world. However, if you spent some time training and had the most amazing route, you're going to get to the finish, and you're probably going to do it quite quickly because your route is great. So it's people underestimate the importance of it. And you're a lot better to spend some of your time planning route than going training. It's that important, you know, if you're time limited. I generally like, okay, if I'm spending a hundred hours, the process is quite involved. We could be here for days talking about it, but generally what I'd do is break it down up into stages. So you'd have the start to checkpoint one, checkpoint one to checkpoint two, and I'd, I'd isolate each of them and then plan them as if they were individual routes because the, the start and the ends are, are fixed. I, I then use like Rider GPS to sort of plan me an initial route from the start to the finish or to kind of do it automatically. And then I'll kind of go into it and start iterating from there. And I'll end up with probably three versions, maybe more for each of those sections. Uh, you know, depending on, I might have one that's like lower elevation, uh, like so low, less climbing, but slightly longer. I might have one that avoids towns. I might have one that, you know, follows a river, it, it, these kind of things, or maybe like look at the wind directions and then have one that, that, that has the, goes with the wind if I can. And then I'll start to narrow those, those down once I'm really happy with each of those versions and work out which is best. And it might be that I start the race with a couple versions on my, on my GPS. And then depending on the conditions on the ground and, and anything, um, then I can pick one up either on the go or just before the race when I pick a final route, really. Right. You presumably, uh, does anybody, has anybody tried um, computer modeling different routes? Is that is that a thing yet? Think, think well, of the things like Best Bike Split, which we use for shorter routes, but I don't know how that yeah. works. Yeah. 
I, I've looked at those, and there are there are there are other there are the other ones, the wind and these things, but they don't take into account a lot of variables, like you know, going through a town. You know, how often do you need to go through a town? Because you need a village every now and again to get food, but if you go through a town or a city, it's going to cost you a lot of time. And then, like road surfaces, do, do they account for that? And then, when you're in the Balkans, do these things. So, I, I the, the software to like, okay, so route planners, like online ones can plan you a route but they don't take account of all the variables that you need to take account of as a racer and and those variables might change depending on the time of day as well because obviously going through a city at two in the morning isn't the same as going through a city at two in the afternoon and then depending on the weather and these things as well so potentially some of it but i think really it's at the point where human intervention is still very much like the best way to get it done the, the psychology of all of this is, I mean, again, it's something you must end up talking about a lot, but I think I can, I can understand the motivation behind wanting to do this kind of a race. I don't think that's actually very different from the motivation behind wanting to do a short race. It's the same kind of detailed preparation, the training, the outlook, whatever. That doesn't seem so different. The thing that I really look at and think is that in any race of any length you have a bad spell even in a four minute pursuit on the track i always had a really bad spell somewhere around about laps lap three and four were always really bad for me in this round of track pursuit because that's about it's it's 34 35 seconds in so you've made a massive starting effort everything catches up with you and it just whatever you do, you feel that you're getting slower and slower and slower. And, and for about 25 seconds as an absolute crisis, you get the same thing in a 10-mile time trial or even a 12-hour. The thing about what, what you do is that your bad patch is probably going to last for longer than any event I've ever ridden in its entirety. <laughs> yeah, I guess when you put it like that. Um, I mean, it's it's probably a different bad patch because you're, you're riding in permanent crisis mode when you're doing something like that. And How kind I of you honestly... to say so? <laughs> Well, I mean, I would be. I know what you mean. I mean, you're absolutely right. It is kind of, it's, it's, a, it's physiologically perilous and you're doing something different. I'm, I'm riding fairly gently, you know, uh, for a long, long time at a not very high speed in a fairly permissive heart, heart rate zone. Um, not that I would know about such things. But yeah, the, the bad patches are interesting. There's, there's quite a few different ones. So I've told you about day three syndrome. And I think for me, I've had crises again around sort of seven or eight days and a couple of races I've dropped out at that point um and there's always quite a good reason to drop out by that point like there's a very legitimate medical reason by that point to, there will to, be something wrong with be. you by that point yeah oh yeah yeah so you know it's if if your brain is not in it it's a fairly easy decision to make so there's that point um and then for me on a on a day by day basis, afternoons are terrible for me. I feel like it's the end of the world and I am slow and pathetic and I hate everything and my bike and myself and I don't know why I'm there, um, which is a bit sort of horrible. But, you know, I realised that this is a thing. This is a pattern. I always feel like that. And that became part of my race strategy. It was mornings like from the moment i get up at like 3 a.m to the time i have something whatever passes for lunch i am flying so that's when i cover the miles afternoons i would then say okay ride really slowly and weakly hope that nobody sees you go down into your small ring and just hobble onwards and then as uh, as night fell 
I would get some sort of second wind. I don't know why. And as soon as it got dark, I'd be moderately flying again. So you're kind of the opposite of solar powered. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. I think there are um, the sort of interplays with the light as well, because I'd have a bit of a dip at the very darkest point of the night. And I think everybody does. And there's quite obvious reasons for that. But then I would also, it would get light and you start to feel a bit better. I would also have a really interesting energy dip as the sun rose um, and often have to lie down for 10 minutes or so just because my eyelids were drooping. And I don't really know why that is, but I think it could be that the change of the light has done something to my brain and possibly just dazzled me and I can't keep my eyes open. So it was, and you've got a lot of time to think and theorize on these races. So you get really self-involved. I've come up with all of these theories as to you know, why my particular energy levels go that way. But a lot of people will, will find it different. I think some people afternoons are good for I was, was going to say, are, you know, when you get together and talk about these things, uh, does everyone, I clearly, I imagine pretty much everyone has bad patches, but do, but do they follow a pattern? Are they the same for everyone or are they very individual? Um, I think they follow a few different patterns. You probably find, you know, in a conversation of many ultra races, people would have a lot in common, but there are, there are differences, definitely. Um, and I, I have ridden with people on, on Audaxes and things where our, our bad patches don't coincide, which can be quite good because you can support each other, but they can be quite a drag because when one person is slowing down and feeling pathetic, the other person is wanting to sprint. And when I say sprint, I mean like, you know, maybe, maybe up to 20k an hour. Oof. And you get these, I mean, okay, there are patterns within the day. In the Indian, you say kind of, oh, you always have a bad patch about seven or eight days, which actually that's a sentence that I understand the individual words, but it doesn't make any sense <laughs> to me. Um, um, how does that, how do I put this? I mean, does getting on towards the end, is that a motivation or in some ways when you get on toward the end of an event like this, is there nearly a, a disappointment that it's over? Oh, well, oh, the end is a really interesting. Um, so I'm sure you must have had the sort of finish line syndrome of seeing the end in sight and mistakenly thinking it's all over when it's actually not. Um, and that's not a very nice experience to put yourself through. Um, in 2016, when I was about 200k from the end, I decided that I was on the finishing straight and consequently had the worst night of my life. Um, it was just, I mean, I cannot emphasize how awful it was because it never, there was never any point where I managed to kind of switch off or forget how awful it was. You know, you think, oh, I'll get into a groove at some point and miss half an hour of this awfulness, but I never did. I had very, very painful saddle sore. Um, and I was very slow and tired and my hands and feet were starting to hurt everything just lots of different parts of my body hurt in different ways and I just kept pushing onwards and kept thinking maybe it's less than 100 miles to go no 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 it's not and then ride for another couple of hours and it would maybe be down to 98 or something like that and no matter how much anyway I could go on for a long time about how awful it was and I'd made the mistake there of thinking I was nearly finished you've nearly yeah no I've I've had that in longer not as badly as that because 200 kilometers never done it well apart from the 12 hour i've not i've never regularly raced beyond 100 miles um but even in that instance you think oh yeah i've I've, I've got to the last 20 minutes and the last 20 minutes of 100 can last for a very very long time some sometimes they can absolutely fly past because you've 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 done it well you've nailed it you know you've got this 
Um, but it can also it can, it can also go the other way very very badly. And quite this, if you upscale that to day eight or day nine, a two hundred kilometer, yeah. I can imagine what you're talking about. Except it's not going to last for twenty minutes. It's going to last for. A oh, day. it lasted. It lasted for years that night. It was, <laughs> uh, um, but I learned from that. Um, though a couple of years later, I did a, a four-day lejog, which, by the standards of people you're That's talking about, lands down to, uh, to John O'Groats lejog. Yeah. I take it, yeah. Which is kind of fast for a civilian, but slow for a record breaker, like you know, half the speed. Um, and it was it was winter, so it was pretty cold. And we got beyond the three of us. We got beyond Inverness, and it's kind of just over a hundred miles after that. And I remembered that it was a bad idea to think only a hundred miles, and decided um, that my psychology was going to be: I was going to not want it to end. I was going to make the most of being on the road and enjoy being in the moment. And and it actually worked really well. Uh, it hasn't always. Sometimes you think, "Why would I enjoy this? It's horrible." Um, but it, that turned out to be quite a good strategy of really not focusing on the end at all, but thinking, I've not got much left of this. Let's make the most of it. Let's keep doing it well. I've ridden an awful lot of bike races down the years, but as I've said more than once, they've been pretty trifling affairs compared to what we're talking about here. Listening to Emily, nothing seems as foreign to me as the mental element. I wanted to ask James about it too, though, on the basis that he came from a background that's a bit more familiar to me than Emily's. So just how different is it from the less extreme races? It's different and the same. And I, and I think back to perhaps actually having raced some time trials, because it's it's not like a road race if, if you're into cycling. It's not like a road race, because a road race very much is dictated by what other people are doing, and you have to react rather than act. But in a time trial, you don't really know what others are doing unless you're getting time checks and all these other things. But still then, you're very much, you're, you're acting, aren't you? Because you're going as fast as you can go based off the conditions in front of you. And you're having to keep yourself going. And, and, and if you're riding a long time trial, it's for long enough that you're, it's not just a single all-out effort. You know, a 10-mile time trial, you know, is you know, something probably under 20 minutes, one would hope. And that's about short enough to, that you're not going to have a huge, you know, opportunity for your brain to start working because you're, you're pushing so hard that most of the blood is going to your legs and, you, and your brain is not really functioning that well. Okay, okay to function a bit and, and if you're having a bad day and, and you listen to these things, it, it could shut you down, but it's not long enough. But if you start riding 100 or, or a 12, you know, 100 miles or a 12 hours, it, it's you're going slow enough that your brain can keep working quite well uh, and well enough that it can start to, to interrupt your function because it, it's, if, if you allow negative self-talk or any of these other things to come in, um, you're going to get disillusioned and you're probably going to quit. And so it, imagine that, but, but multiply it over days and, and you can see just how much it is, is a mental thing because if you can't control what your brain is doing, it's going to be your worst enemy. You know, so People ask me, um, how, how do you stop yourself go into a negative place and the answer is you just have to not allow it really because as soon as you as soon as you allow sort of the negativity to creep in it it, it takes it takes root like a like a plant you know or like, a, like a weed we've talked about how supported and unsupported races differ and from a psychological point of view those differences can be more fundamental than i'd have expected as Shu explained to me from the perspective of having done both emily does have experience of crewing on race across america so she's seen it from the the um the, the behind the rider um, view. What I would say is 
different is I think it comes down to some um, some kind of personality. Um, I do not like my own company. So I discovered that on day seven of Transcontinental, um, where actually I was just cycling. I can do the cycling. I got no problem with the cycling across Europe, but I was I was just miserable because it was so hot and nothing was working. Um, I couldn't like turn to somebody and say, should we just stop and go to the pub for a beer and then carry on going? And I just got myself into just more and more depressed about it. Um, and I just thought, I don't know why I'm doing it. Whereas supported for me, you've got such a different atmosphere of um, teamwork and the team um, all in, in it together. They've got the same goal. Everybody wants to get on. Everybody wants to get to the finish. But some people hate that. Um, so Juliana Buring, who is a, another famous um, unsupported ultra cyclist, she tried to do race across America. She hated people being behind her in a van. She wanted them to go away. You know, she hated them on the radio to her, like, what do you want to drink? What do you want to eat? Are you hot? Are you cold? It's just a different way of cycling. Yeah. If you want to get a bit of a grip on just the length the support crew might have to go to to keep their rider motivated, happy and above all awake, try this anecdote for size. You should have seen some of the stuff they were doing. They they stopped in a um they stopped in a, a garage and they they bought some really dodgy um soft porn book. Um and they then proceeded to read paragraphs out of it but with different um accents. And I had to guess the accent from this awful soft porn that was being read into my ear whilst I'm trying to concentrate on pedaling, but they found it hilarious. Um, and, and then you're like, you can't get away from it. <laughs> uh, sleep is another compromise because clearly if you are asleep, you're not getting any nearer the finish line, but if you don't sleep at all, you're never going to get to the finish line at all. So in the same way that aerodynamics, equipment, compromises and all of that, this is another compromise I don't know anything about. Um, sleeping has never been an issue for me. Yeah. So how do, you, how do you manage that? It's a really difficult one to manage psychologically because one of the things, if you're in a race and you are treating it as a race, which everyone is to some extent, you're aware that there are competitors and you might be aware of where they are in relation to you. And of course, if you then stop and sleep for an hour or three or six or however long you're going to sleep, that's time during which your competitor could be gaining a massive advantage over you and no one wants to do that you don't want to stop if there's someone on your heels or someone just ahead of you who will then get further ahead um but of course if you don't sleep then you will eventually blow up and this happened the first year i did the transcontinental it was 2015 um and it's interesting you'll probably come across james hayden who is uh very much the opposite of me in how he approaches and uh, contests and wins races. He is very methodical. He and I were both um, riding our first transcontinental and we both came to grief actually in fairly similar ways, um, although he was hundreds of miles ahead of me by that point. I had a great time crossing the Alps and I felt like a superhero. I was four days in, it was going really well. And there was one female pair left in the race. And as I was coming down uh, Colle di Finestre into Susa, I, um, I passed them on the road. They didn't see me. And I just thought, right, well, I'm not going to let them get ahead of me anymore. And I feel great. I'm just going to give up sleeping. I've heard people only sleep 20 minutes in races like this. So I just smashed it across Italy with no sleep for three or four days. Um, and when I say smashed it, I mean gradually ground to a halt. Um, 
and then got into Slovenia and was just not in any fit state anymore and had to stop. And James did something similar. He was, it was his first race. He was very excited and he was up there in the top three. Um, and he didn't look after himself and he ended up getting Shermer's neck, which is a, a fairly um, unique affliction of ultra races where you've held your head up for so long that your neck muscles deteriorate and you can't keep your head up anymore. Um, so he had to, he tried to tape his head in posi position. It didn't work and he dropped out too. Um, and I remember that year being told by a friend who was on the final checkpoint about Josh Ibbott, who was the eventual winner, who had done things like this before and knew a little more about how it worked. And he hadn't worried at all. Like James was ahead of him for some of the way, but he could also see that James wasn't sleeping. And he was like, this is fine. I'll just keep going at my pace. Eventually James will crash. Oh, look, he did. And then he carried on and won. And as I was starting my second race, which is the one I won, like the first couple of days, I was kind of settling in and thinking about what my strategy was. I'd figured out by that point that I needed four hours sleep a night, which is not much, but it's, you know, it's more than some would have. And on four hours sleep a night, sometimes a bit more, maybe sometimes a bit less, I can keep going for, <clears throat> for quite a while. And I realized that there were other women who, you know, who might be faster than me or might be roughly equal to me, that my speed overall had to include my sleep, my supermarket stops, my bike faff, my map reading or whatever else. And so did theirs. And if they rode a lot faster than me and had more efficient supermarket stops and slept only two hours a night and could keep that up for the duration of the race, then they were going to win. Um, and there was nothing I could do about that. And if I decided that I was going to miss a night's sleep to try and overtake someone, great, I probably would. But then two days later, I would blow up and have to quit. So it wasn't really worth it. So it's a, you have to take, it's not just about your speed of your riding. It's, it's, it's everything that's part yes. of that. I think kind of, it says you would just sleep for four hours a night. And that was, that, that was just your rule every night, four hours in a hedge, in a hotel. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> a bit of both. Um, I preferred to sleep outdoors. Um, and my ideal sleeping spot was at the corner of an alpine meadow. Uh, just sleeping on grass was lovely. Um, and it was really nice because, you know, you just think, oh, I'm a bit tired. You stop the bike. Within about three minutes, you're lying down in your bivy bag. You get this precious, precious 30 seconds where you feel the happiest you've ever felt as you feel your body sink into the ground and finally rest. Then you asleep. And then your alarm wakes you up four hours later and you regret everything in your life for a couple of hours until you warm up. I'm guessing the bit where your alarm goes off is not a good bit. Uh, no, some, sometimes it was all right, but no, it was, it was like, okay, now I've got another 20 hours riding before I get to, to lie down again. Um, but it was, I preferred uh, sleeping outdoors every maybe three nights or so I would find a, a cheap hotel or something. And I think I got a better quality of rest there, but there was a lot more faff around it. And with hotels, I'd often have to stop earlier than I wanted because, you know, they're not open at 2 a.m. Um, but if you're only getting four hours sleep and you, you know, you go to sleep at 11, you're then getting up at three. And the first couple of hours of the day, it's dark and it's possibly cold. And I would just keep falling asleep. So if I was sleeping outdoors, I would ride till, say, two 
and then get up at six when the light was coming. And that would kind of give you a bit of a boost into the day. So it, again, it was a compromise. There and were uh, reasons I needed to be in hotels sometimes. In an odd but... way, you're selling me on this whole concept. That actually sounds rather nice. <laughs> which, which bit? I, I must admit, I like the idea of, of bivying down in an alpine meadow at two o'clock in the morning waking up at six o'clock, getting back on my bike. I mean, don't get me wrong. I have no intention of doing this. Um, and, and I will not wish to be reminded of this element of the conversation. But but actually, you, you could sell that to me as sort of something. It would feel like a satisfying, it would feel like a worthwhile thing to do. Whether it is worthwhile or not, it's a different question. But I think at that, at that moment, it would feel it. It was really nice. And waking up and riding on your own on alpine roads, watching the sun breaking over the mountains, and then maybe two hours in, finding somewhere where you can get a coffee. It's a special sort of joy. Um, I mean, the thing I would have felt the night before, so I, the first, the transcontinental was the first time I'd really ridden in the Alps. And you'd get to about six in the evening and you'd be riding through somewhere like Andermatt or something. And you'd see all of these people on their holidays, you know, they've clearly been out hiking all day or they've gone and done a 50 mile loop or something on their bike. And they're going back to their hotels, their campsites, they're sitting outside with beers, they're going to restaurants. And I'd ride through with this sense of wistfulness thinking, you've got the same energy I have, you've been out all day, except I'm going to go till midnight, I've got another mountain pass to do and then I'm going to sleep in a field. Um like that, that bit was quite hard. And it made me think I want to come back and do this in a slightly more civilized way one day. That's an odd kind of way in that you're not, you're not touching society as you go through it. You're the kind yeah. of, the, you're the ghostly figure in the background on the bike. Who's not quite there. That's, that's a really interesting part of it because you, you do feel like you're, you're doing this sort of fairly momentous thing that is mostly under the radar. And even the people you do meet and have encounters with, they don't, often realize that you're doing this thing that is is quite impressive to most people and a lot of the time yeah it's dark you know i've i've ridden through um huge amounts of europe just in the dark no one saw me um there's parts of europe i've ridden through several times and never seen in daylight um but then there is the sort of the corresponding moment where every now and then in the middle of bloody nowhere, you will run into someone who is on the same race, which is not beyond the bounds of possibility because you are, you know, roughly yes. going in the same direction. And that is amazing because it's like you've run into a family member. Yeah. Yes, there's kind of a sudden connection that you probably weren't really quite expecting. Yeah. And they're do they know what you're doing because they're doing it too. And it's, it's wonderful. I mean, I've had it, you know, I've, I've gone into little bars in Croatia and seen another racer sitting there drinking Coke. And it's, uh, it's particularly magic. I really love making this episode. Talking to three riders whose careers have been so very, very different from mine, riding events that ask for something that's just so extreme. And as always, when I talk to riders about what they do and how they do it, I want to get out there and do it too. I'm not actually going to, obviously. I'm good for a brisk 20 minutes or so, and everything after that is a diminishing return. Talking to Emily, James and Shu, it's very obvious to me that there aren't a lot of people who have what they have. But there's something profound and even moving about the idea of crossing a continent armed with just a bike, yourself, and somebody reading you soft porn in a bad Australian accent. My thanks to Emily Chappell, James Hayden and Hugh Pillinger. My thanks to you for listening. I hope you found it as inspiring and eye-opening as I did. And my thanks as always to Cycling Weekly magazine for supporting the show.
You just heard a stripped media production. 